and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me is either Lily 1 or Lily 2, one of the Lilies. That would be me, both of them. <laughs> also joining us is someone more plant than man, Sean. Yes, ficus. <laughs> Watch your language. And last but not least, the high gorgon of the show coming once again with an offering of doom, <laughs> Steve. Steve, welcome back. Uh, thank you. I was wondering what I was going to be. Well, just when I think Steve can't get any more obscure with his episode selection for the podcast, <laughs> he drops this on us like a like a heat ray on a vegeton. <laughs> I, I hope you realize I do this just to torture you. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I did a good job this time. Forty-seven Ugh. minutes of <laughs> whatever. Whatever this was. Whatever it was. Well, this week we watched an episode of the short-lived 70s sci-fi sitcom about a heroic space garbage man and his eccentric crew and their adventures in the 23rd century. Quark. (laughs) Star Trek it ain't. No. More specifically, we watched the episode entitled May the Source Be With You. It originally aired on NBC February 2nd, 1978. It's technically considered to be the first episode of season one. There was also a pilot that aired the previous May, but this episode kicked off its very long seven-episode run as a mid-season replacement from February to April 1978. And boy, was this painful. (laughs) Yes. This show literally gave me diarrhea. (laughs) I mean, I didn't have as violent a reaction to it, but uh, I definitely found myself checking how much time was left every 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have to confess that I actually fell asleep in the last five or ten minutes of this show. (laughs) (laughs) But in all fairness, I did see this on its original broadcast, so this was just to refresh things in my mind. Oh, man. Yeah, I was going to ask, Steve, so what do you remember of this show? Good memories? Bad memories? I remember being in high school when 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 I first saw it, and I remember a friend of mine who actually liked it and would quote it years after the fact (laughs) and uh, and mourned its uh, its absence from the airways. Apparently, he's not the only person that I guess it does have enough of a cult following that... It actually has uh, been released on DVD. That yeah. was—I read that. That's amazing to me. I—I—I I, I, I can't. There's so many other shows that haven't been released on DVD that are more deserving. Now, Steve, do you remember when this show came out in '78? Was it heavily advertised? Was it heavily, you know, promoted? No, no, it wasn't promoted at all that I saw. Apparently, it was. It did receive some promotion, I should say. Uh, there were some ads in uh, TV Guide uh, that, for anyone younger than, say, 30, is, uh, was a magazine that came out. It was like a channel guide with pictures. <laughs> what? Uh, oh, you mean the yeah. website? Yeah. It came in the mail. Oh. The what? <laughs> and uh, not only that, but they actually also had, uh, in way of promotional materials, they had fake interviews with the characters themselves oh. that were released by the uh, studio and uh they they were they were pretty bad <laughs> this is a dark time for television as well the interviews were conducted or at least the byline on them was uh 
was by Woodward S. Bernstein the 23rd. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. And were they these fake interviews as bad as the television show itself? Oh, every bit as much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, they, they, they were ghastly. <laughs> so what made you watch this show? <laughs> it was because a friend liked it and, and recommended it. He said, this is a great new show, and it was wrong. <laughs> but, now I, but now I'm inflicting it on you guys, but at least... I was upfront about it being bad. No, we, we kind of knew what we were getting into. My stepdad actually confessed, or it wasn't a confession because he seemed to be proud of it, that um, <laughs> he loved this show. And when I told him I watched the episode on YouTube, he acted like he was about to go binge watch everything that existed. <laughs> See, I told you, it's a, it's a cult classic. Or Steve just went to school with your stepdad. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's possible. Yeah, really. <laughs> Well, I'm happy to say that Quark follows the same gestational schedule as myself. Oh my goodness! We have something in common, me and me and Quark. Um, the pilot aired on May seventh, seventy seven, which is nine months before its actual first episode, which was in February of seventy eight. Now, I was born about six days after the premiere episode of the show came out in February of seventy eight. Just yeah, for mentioning that, that, I'm I'm no longer sorry for making you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, something happens, and I'm pretty sure it caused my mother to go into labor. <laughs> but yeah, we we were created at the same time, me and Quark, and thankfully I lived past April '78, which Quark did not. Maybe it's like my uh, the twin I absorbed or something. Ugh. Oh my lord. <laughs> so I feel a special connection that way towards it, but that's about it. <laughs> The show actually has um, some sort of pedigree to it. It was created by uh, by Buck Henry, better known, of course, for working on The uh, Graduate and as the creator of Get Smart. Yeah, a good show. Yes, actual good shows and good movie. It, it was unexpected, I, I admit, when, when it came on the air, that it was going to be this bad. <laughs> well, I was probably hoping he had there get smart in his hands and well, it shows you, know. you what shows you what Mel Brooks brought to the table then. <laughs> but you know, it's easy to to poke fun at the show and and how bad it was. But you know, not only did it have a you know Buck Henry as creator, but it also received some recognition uh, for its brief run. In that one season, that one abbreviated season, the show actually was also uh, nominated for an Emmy Award. <laughs> and the category? <laughs> Costume design. Of course. Of course. And, you know, we in a previous episode, Steve and I discussed uh, the, the first episode of Galactica 1980, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> man, it, it's just as bad as this thing. And that, too, had an Emmy nomination for costume design so it's like something it's like well let's throw a bone to the sci-fi show let's just say the costume design Ugh. well i mean marissa tomei won an oscar too so i mean come on well that's debatable <laughs> yeah well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know, there's there were some big names there uh you know uh, richard benjamin was you know fairly well known still is today and uh buck henry of course had this whole like you said pedigree of creating great comedy but this wow this was a 
quite the flop. Apparently the tank ran dry. <laughs> Evidently. This was during the energy now, crisis, right? Yes. <laughs> now, now, Richard Benjamin, I read, uh, learned about the show uh, while uh, he was actually in his dentist's office, uh, and he was reading a, a copy of Variety that was lying around the office, and that's where he learned about the show. He actually took a, uh, a pay cut from what he was normally paid in order to get the uh, role of uh, Adam Clark. Hmm. I thought you were going to say he was under with Novocaine when he heard of the show, <laughs> having a massive well, root canal or something. <laughs> and they forced him to sign a contract at that point, saying he would appear on it. That may have affected his judgment. A bit. But wow. yeah, he, Richard Benjamin, he, I mean, he's had a very good, had a, you know, still alive, thankfully, but has had a very good career. You know, a lot of parts on, you know, some really high-profile uh, movies um, and TV shows. So, again, we all have stinkers, so what are you going to do? In fact, he, uh, he starred in uh, Westworld, which oh, yeah. is now being uh, remade by HBO. It's a series. Oh, wow. And, and I was going to mention, too, he was also direct, you know, a good director, directed a, a bunch of uh, well-known comedies, especially The Money Pit, which I always loved growing up, the uh, Tom Hanks and Shelley Long movie. That's a great, yeah, great movie. And he was just recently in Children's Hospital. I don't know if you guys ever watched that, the Adult Swim series. Oh, no. Very, oh, we've heard about it. Very weird humor, so it's just funny to see that Richard Benjamin showed up in that. In theory, the show doesn't sound that bad. I mean, who doesn't want to, like, poke fun at all the sci-fi tropes? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, on paper, it's like, well, this thing is, like, making fun of Star Wars, it's making fun of Star Trek, and, uh, was it Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers? Uh, Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, yeah. Yeah, so it's like... 2001. Yeah, 2001 Space Odyssey. So, it, it should work, and this is a guy that has already spoofed the spy genre quite successfully, so this, you know, this was gonna be great. Yeah, but it was its time. <laughs> it never had its time. It's time still hasn't arrived, even, unfortunately. Even uh, got in a, a couple of uh, of other names on the uh, show. I, I guess uh, Joan Van Ark played a role on it oh, wow. in one of the episodes. Um, Ross Martin uh, showed up in a couple of them. And Ross Martin was who played uh, Artemis Gordon in the uh, in the original uh, the the program, not the movie of uh, Wild Wild West. Oh, okay, he was uh, he was on it uh, playing. Zorgon the Malevolent. <laughs> they also managed to land the uh, the Barnstable twins, who are better known to the world as the Doublemint twins. Yes. It's really the only positive part of this entire show, I believe. <laughs> the Barnstable twins. They were from Kentucky. And in fact, uh, Patricia Barnstable, she lost when... Her mother had uh, had the twin daughters draw straws to see who would get entered in uh, the uh, Miss Kentucky Beauty pageant. Patricia lost the uh, drawing of the straws, but she did win Miss Kentucky pageant and went on to become a uh, fifth runner-up in the Miss USA pageant in 1971. <laughs> if I ever have another daughter, her name will be Sib. Sib, yeah, <laughs> not often heard. <laughs> it sounds like some kind of insult. <laughs> What a <laughs> <laughs> now, I also read, too, that they're famous uh, for being uh, 
University of Kentucky cheerleaders. Their dad was a two-time NCAA basketball champion for University of Kentucky. He was also a war hero who fought with General Patton and liberated a, a concentration camp. And uh, still, oh, to this day, they are, like, I guess, considered socialites in Kentucky. Very, very much active in the uh, Kentucky Derby party scene, I guess you could say. They're in that world. You know, the, the, the ladies wearing the big hats and all that stuff. So, so they're still around, but uh, no more acting for them. I think this was their first and last role. <laughs> well, if you have Quark and Double Mint money, you don't have to act anymore. Come on. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, so we should probably get right into this. Okay. So we called open on a very tense scene in the year 2226. We see Adam Quark and the rest of the crew on a United Galaxy sanitation patrol cruiser. They're looking on as Quark activates the ship's autograb arm, uh, grabbing a loose bag of trash floating in space. And they successfully retrieve it. We cut to an exterior shot of the cruiser and we hear, put her on Astro Track and let's get out of here. And that's that was our introduction to the to the crew with a laugh track. We should mention too that this show has a, a pretty annoying laugh track. Well, I'm gonna be the first to say this ship looks like a piece of crap. I was gonna ask you guys what you thought about this. You know, we we've seen so many iconic ships in science fiction. What did you think of the, the look of this one? It, uh, you know, it, the arms didn't really do it for me. Um, they grabbed the trash bag. And the fact, you know, the thing that bothered me the most about this ship, okay, it's it's a normal looking kind of, you know, it has a mouth apparently to eat garbage. The fact that it didn't have a name, yeah, you know, that that bugged really me too. Bothered me. The ship is what they called it. Yeah. It looks like an airplane with a flotation device on the bottom. That's the same color as the the airplane. Mm. And all the shots of the ship look like it's literally a cut out piece of paper on a black background. <laughs> They didn't have the kind of uh, budget that uh, Galactica 1980 had to work with, okay? <laughs> Evidently not. It's sad that this is post-Star Wars, and we're seeing just yeah, absolute garbage, literally and uh, uh, metaphorically. Bag. Why, now, here's a question. Why The ship that dumped off the garbage out of its behind area, why did it even have to drop it off? Couldn't it store it and, and take it somewhere else or chuck it into a sun or something? Yeah. I mean, or just drop it off in space. I mean, who's going to, who cares? <laughs> That's space true. Space is pretty big. I mean, there's a good chance that no one will ever wander upon this bag of trash ever again. It almost seems Watch like it. a punishment to, like, fly forever in space and pick up other people's garbage. Yeah, very Maybe they're much a so. prison crew. <laughs> So from here, we cut to a very funky opening theme, uh, very reminiscent of the Star Trek theme, along with the show's title cards and credits. Like Some of the music cues in this, in this show, uh, really close to Star Wars, really close to Star Trek. Yeah. This is really, really close to some Star Trek sounds in here. Well, actually, with some of the uh, sound effects, they, they did use this, the same recordings uh, for the effects as... Uh, as from uh, Star Trek. So they were directly quoting that. Oh, wow. The music, though, was very similar, but just different enough not to get in trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we next open on an exterior shot of the, I don't know, hockey puck or urinal cake-shaped space station called Perma-1. <laughs> and uh, cutting in... I thought it looked like a Tylenol. Yes, or tablet. I think urinal cake is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, cutting inside, we see that there is some sort of emergency in which the entire crew is being evacuated by Otto Bob Palindrome, played by Conrad Janus, along with his short, hairy alien assistant named Dink. Cousin it of the future. Pretty much. Now, Conrad Janus, he's much better known for his next TV role that he got after this, playing Mindy's father on Mork and Mindy. Evidently, the guy just loved working with aliens. So. I, I, this is one of the clever things of the show I enjoyed. That his name is um, Otto Bob Palindrome, yes. and his name is actually you know backwards and forwards the same for both his, his first and middle name, which I thought was clever. But I, I thought it was Otto A U T O. No. Okay, that makes much more sense. Yeah, O T T O and B O B. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been maligning this show for thirty years. Just they just got their first laugh from you. they're counting them so you know so palindrome here he's quite stressed he's running around he's giving orders very neurotic character he also mentions that uh children and quasi norms first i guess later on in the series there's more about the quasi norms i think it's their costumes that got uh, nominated for a primetime emmy but we don't see them here it it was certainly that episode yeah that that the uh, nomination came from okay so at one point, I like two two of the aliens on board. They're like touching foreheads, and he pauses to say, "Like, will you stop doing that?" So, in the midst of the chaos, uh, some United Galaxy commanders enter, including our main protagonist Adam Quark, of course, played by Richard Benjamin. Uh, Palindrome tells them that they are late for a very important meeting with a man called the Head. Basically, he's just a, a disembodied giant head who is literally the head of the operation there and the one whom Palindrome directly answers to. I gotta and, say, wonderful um, work on the um, the makeup for the head. <laughs> it's so flawless that you can't tell the difference between his actual head and his prosthetic head. It's it's really, <laughs> really amazing the work they did there. It's not like they slapped a, a fake head on them or anything. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the head here is played by Alan Kalu. And one sad fact about Alan Kalu is that his IMDb profile picture is him in the full The Head makeup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's horrible. But it, it's it's too bad because he was a very interesting man. I don't know if any of you guys did any more research in, on, on his uh, biography. I pretty much stopped at the uh, Doubleman Twins. <laughs> he was, a, was he a British actor? Well, yeah, he he was born in England. Uh, his yeah. his real name was Alan Lyle Smythe or Smith. Uh, he was born in England in 1914, and in mm. the 1930s he served on the Palestine Police Force. And while there, he became fluent in Arabic. And because of this, when World War II started, he worked for British intelligence in Africa. And while he was there, he took the alias Kalu, which I guess is French for stone. Kalu. There's, there's a PBS children's show called Caillou, which is spelled the same way. Oh, so maybe it's Caillou. I'm saying it wrong. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, he he escaped prison in Italy where he was to be executed. Then he served in Yugoslavia. He was awarded the military cross and some other honors from the, the British government. And from there, he went to work back in Palestine. He was then promoted to police commissioner in what was then British Somaliland. And there he became a professional hunter, From there, he later moved to Canada, continued his hunting, but also picked up acting and started acting under his alias, Caillou. So, you know, he just went on to be this man of 
you know, this jack of all trades, this man who lived a very interesting life. And he was also a prolific writer. He wrote about his life experiences in the books, The World is Six Feet Square and Sheba Slept Here. So if anybody wants to read any more about his, his life. And the third volume of his life story, and then there was Clark. <laughs> it's a pamphlet. The end. You know what I don't like about his character? Look at the weight distribution of his head. If he's just a floating head, don't you think the top would just like, he'd just entirely turn upside down? See, I always thought that he wasn't just a floating head. He just saw his head in the, in the monitor. Like he has a body, I think. I don't know. With a name like The Head, you better be a disembodied floating head. Well, he's, he's called The Head because he has a big head. You know, how, how can you survive without body? You know, you I mean, if you're an omnipotent space being. I, I think Lily's right. I believe, you know, he wore obviously black. Because if you look at that IMDb picture, it's him sitting like on a stool, cloaked in black with the head makeup. But I think they were trying to imply that he was a floating head. Which raises the question... How did they get that enormous prosthetic head through the turtleneck? <laughs> <laughs> he wore a dicky. The whole process. He, <laughs> he wore a dicky. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the episode. The, the head tells them that they are facing the greatest crisis in the 211-year history of the United Galaxy. Which, first of all, it takes you 211 years to unite a galaxy. It should take you like 211 billion years to unite a galaxy. But anyway... You can't even get from, like, one small area to the next in 211 years. Hold on, 211 years. According to the uh, back of the DVD box set, this uh, takes place in 2222 AD. You take 211 off of that, you're left in 2011. So we started uniting the uh, the galaxy five years ago? (laughs) Evidently. (laughs) I I think I found a flaw in the... uh, the in the whole scenario. Oh, I was holding out hope that this could be a reality, but you've dashed it to pieces, Steve. <laughs> I, 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 I can't watch any more of this. <laughs> I think that probably it's a it's a human um, egotistical thing where the galaxy, I'm doing air quotes, is actually Earth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Miss okay. Universe. E- exactly. Miss U- <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So they don't care about any of these other races in the galaxy. The galaxy is just, you know, oh yeah, we united the galaxy. That's all we care about is our little portion of it. So it's just an ego trip. Sean's got a point. I don't know, I'm still just uh, disillusioned like I was when I found out that Top Gear was staged. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Oh, I should have said spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. So they're facing this great crisis, and their enemies, the Gorgons, have developed a weapon so powerful, he can't believe it. And now their leader, the High Gorgon, is speeding towards Perma-1 in this doomsday ship. But next, the head gives the commanders their assignments. He tells the first one, uh, Commander Walker, you will evacuate our leading scientist. And he agrees, he runs off. He next tells Commander, I I didn't get her name, was it Estro? Estrogen. That's what I thought. I was like, it's got to be short for estrogen. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And she will evacuate their top secret files. And she runs off. And so finally, the head tells Commander Quark his assignment is to seek out and destroy the High Gorgon's doomsday ship down to his last breath of life. And of course, Quark looks a little surprised by this task. You know, he's a garbage man after all. And the, the head quickly signs off with the galactic slogan, The Galaxy Ad Infinitum. 
I'll add something. (laughs) (laughs) So stepping out of the room, Quark immediately addresses his concerns with Palindrome, because, you know, Quark, I guess, directly reports to Palindrome. Uh, He wonders, you know, how is he supposed to stop the High Gorgon's powerful spaceship? Was he supposed to just ram it with his garbage ship? I'm okay with that. It would make for a more interesting episode. (laughs) Or a very short one. They don't want to, like, break the models by crashing them together. I'm okay with that, too. crumple the piece of paper. They're like four one, so, you know. (laughs) And Palindrome tells him, hey, you've always been asking for a good mission, but Quark is like, no, this is too good of a mission, and nobody could survive what's being asked of him. And even though he's, you know, has one of the fleet's greatest crews, they really are just a crew of a garbage retrieval ship. Uh, He reminds Palindrome that his crew consists of, now everybody take notes, an emotional transmute, a homemade robot, a Betty and her clone, and a plant. And with that crew, he stands no chance of taking on this mission. It's like the audience is supposed to know what any of these mean. We find out. (laughs) Well, the pilot episode actually explained who they were with the exception of the plant. So you're supposed to remember that from nine months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Palindrome tells him not to question the head, saying he didn't become the head by luck, and he always has something in mind no matter what he does. He tells him that the head chose him over all the other commanders that were begging for a mission like this. And Quark says, why not them? Why me? And Paladrum replies that the head doesn't like commanders that beg. He likes one that asks questions. So, you know, he he keeps saying, you know, like, why me? Like, yes, good. Keep asking those questions. It's like my dad wrote the dialogue. (laughs) It's a lot of dad jokes in this. (laughs) (laughs) So they continue to bicker. They walk around the rooms and the corridors of the space station, which is, you know, quickly emptying. Uh, They end up in a darkened room where Palindrome quietly tells Quark that the head has ordered to give him the United Galaxy's greatest weapon, the Source. Remember, this, this, the name of this episode is May the Source Be With You. I just really appreciate the dead silence that greets every one of the jokes that, that you reveal. <laughs> <laughs> I just got that they were actually talking about the Force here. Oh, I have to admit, okay, I get it now. All right. Yeah, very, very oh, subtle homage yeah. to Star Wars here. You have to stop and think about these jokes for a minute before you get them. That's what the delay is. Yes. It's pretty deep, yeah. (laughs) It rewards repeated viewings. (laughs) Does it? No. (laughs) So, Palindrome lifts the lid on this small metallic dome on, like, a pedestal, and he and Quark are just lit up by the light coming from it. And Quark is so awestruck, he can only say, you know, the source. So this is the source. Palindrome tells him that it's not for menial things like cleaning your portholes. It's saved for the biggies, for clashes between good and evil. And evidently, it seems as though Quark is familiar with the source. He's heard tales about it his whole life and how it can do anything. Well, everybody has a source inside of them. You know, midichlorians and that sort of thing. I was going to mention that. You know, midichlorians are way more acceptable than this thing, as we'll get into. (laughs) Just a, a source, it's such a lazy writing tool for this show, you know, of course, in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, since I haven't watched any other episodes of this, and I never plan to ever, is the source, <laughs> does the source come up anytime after this, Steve? Do you know, or is this, is this the only appearance of the source? Uh, as I said, I fell asleep 37 minutes through this. So <laughs> okay, gotcha. I don't know if he's stuck around for the whole episode. Oh, wait to hear how it ends. Stunning. <laughs> Did he even embody the, the source in any way? I mean, they gave him the voice, and 
the comic relief part of it, which we'll talk about, but it's just so, it was just so lazy. So, so, uh, yeah, pretty much he was a, a disembodied voice, uh, a beam of light that was, you know, from a flashlight off stage and this metal dome that supposedly harnessed it or held it. Evidently, it was used 200 years prior, we learn, during the Quasar Rebellion. So that was only 11 years after the galaxy was united. There was a, a rebellion on a Quasar or something. So when is that in our terms now? We should expect to see that in uh, Six 2022, years. somewhere around there. <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping track of the timeline here. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm a regular Nostradamus. <laughs> Palindrome next makes a prediction. He says that Quark, with help from the source, will defeat the High Gorgon and save the entire galaxy. And as an added incentive, he tells Quark that next week, if he makes it back, lunch is on him. You know, Quark, well, uh, if I make it back? And Palindrome ups it to dinner. Yeah, that does hilarious. How generous. <laughs> so we get an exterior shot of Quark's garbage ship. And in voiceover, we hear him making a mental journal entry known as a star note. So terrible. Uh, At first I thought, oh, so he's doing like a captain's log, star date, that kind of thing. No, he's just thinking. So we hear his <laughs> thoughts every so often, and he just says to himself, star note. See, and that, that ties back to, the, to what we were talking about in the uh, Galactica 80 episode, is the, the propensity in, in science fiction, uh, I'm sorry, bad science fiction, of thinking that all you have to do is add star or space in front of a noun and suddenly it's uh it's all cosmic yeah, exactly <laughs> now quark in his star note here he he says that the most action that he's seen up to this point was from a tear in a garbage baggie but now the the fate of the entire galaxy rides with him so from garbage to gorgons space is an unpredictable job from garbage baggies to gorgons <laughs> That's the most juvenile term I think I've ever heard yeah. for the word trash bag. Baggies. He does use that quite a bit. That is the official term here. And technically, doesn't bag he just uh, refer to a sandwich bag? <laughs> yeah, that's what I picture. Yeah, it well, implies something no, small. No job, no, no matter how big or small, so, you know. <laughs> now, cutting inside the ship, Quark walks around this bridge, addressing the crew. The set is terrible in this ship. Absolutely terrible. It's like Plan 9 from Outer Space, bad. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not stuff falling over. <laughs> and so he walks around uh, to the Bettys. This is Betty 1 and Betty 2. They are the navigators and pilots of the ship. They are often scantily clad blonde ladies. They are identical. They sometimes speak in unison or they take turns, you know, as they're completing a sentence. Uh, one is a clone of the other, but it's never revealed who is the clone of the other. They, they kind of claim that the other is the clone. And uh, there is some love interest between Quark and one of the Bettys, but he's not sure which one. They should have shown that. been a lot more interesting than uh, the rest of the show. It's funny that, you know, the term Betty, because they call, him, call her the Betty. You know, yeah. they'll say, you know, it's almost like her name's not Betty. It's, it's that term they used back in the 50s to call a uh, uh, attractive woman a mm -hmm. Betty. So that's, the, that's what they're really doing here is, is you know... What's the term I'm thinking of? Demeaning women. Demeaning women, yes. Objectifying. That's it. Objectifying or demeaning women. I mean, not that their outfits really show that. Their outfits are really made for space travel, so I'm... I'm, I'm... Yeah, very practical yes. outfits. Worn all the time. The, uh... What's that girl from, um... Dukes of Hazard? 
Daisy the Duke. Daisy, D- Daisy Duke's there really uh, stayed until the 23rd century, I'm happy to see. <laughs> On the Disney Channel's uh, animated show, uh, Kim Possible, one of the, uh, one of the villains uh, were actually the Bettys, and they were uh, sort of androids, and they were all pretty much clones of each other. Uh, I hope that the, the makers of Quark got some uh, residuals from that, because that's, you know, obviously a rip-off from this show. <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Clearly. <laughs> so anyway, the, the Bettys tell Quark that they haven't received any communication from the High Gorgon yet, and they continue. Uh, next, Quark is approached by his science officer, Ficus Pandorata, played by Richard Kelton. And even though Ficus appears human, there, he is actually a plant. There is no makeup for this guy. He is just dressed like a human, and he approaches everything with like a, a Spock-like sensibility of cold logic, uh, calculated, uh, along with some biting wit. It's you just, think that they would have at least put some like twigs in his hair or something? I something. Mean, Green skin? I, Green hair? I mean... Uh. I was confused the whole time. Like, is he actually... Are they trying to pass him off as a plant personified? Because I'm pretty yes. sure if you made a ficus into a human being, it would say nothing. It would be catatonic because yeah. plants aren't intelligent. Did anybody do any research on Richard Kelton who played um, ficus? I did. It's a very yeah. tragic story. Very, it's very, very sad. Very horrible. The poor guy. I mean, he was on another. Uh, Another NBC show after, you know, of course, Quark didn't make the cut called Centennial. And he died of asphyxiation, carbon monoxide poisoning from the, his trailer. And I think the most horrible part of that whole story besides his death is the fact that NBC was only fined $720. Yeah, Universal. Oh, my yeah. God. And that was, or Universal, excuse me, it was only fines. That was for, for pro- failure to provide proper ventilation system. And that was it. There was no other repercussions because his, one of their actors died in his, his uh, uh, trailer during the filming of the show. In fairness, it was the 1970s. <laughs> I yeah. guess. Yeah. But th- that's crazy. This He died nine months after this show premiered. Like, after the yeah. episode that we just watched, he was dead nine months later. And that's what it was. He had a space heater because it was cold. And uh, the, the heater wasn't sufficiently vented. And that's uh, that's what did him in. They found him dead. So, yeah, just a, a tragic story for this guy. It's too bad. Uh, one of the few that has passed away, Alan Caillou, has died. He he lived in into his 90s. Uh, but everyone else is pretty much still with us. Richard Benjamin is still around, and Conrad Janis is still around. But, yeah. Uh, but Jonathan Kaufer was one of the writers on the program. Apparently uh, was killed in a car accident on October the 2nd, 2013, while driving from Las Vegas to uh, Los Angeles. And he is just a little piece of trivia. Was once married to Piazzadora. Oh, really? Hmm. Yes. Huh. From, uh, oh, what was she in? Uh, something about Santa Claus and Mars. Yeah, San- from Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. And she was in one of the Naked Gun movies, too. Wow. In the, in the late 1970s, she was sort of a, a semi-celebrity. She was famous for no one was quite sure what. <laughs> So, back to the episode here. Uh, Ficus tells Quark that he can tell he's nervous because animals like him will produce moisture along with odor, referring to sweat. Uh, Ficus says that plants like himself never feel pressure. The worst they do is wilt. (laughs) He was referring to the sweat. (laughs) That's a relief. (laughs) 
animals like him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just this character is so confounding as we go through it. It's, it's terrible, terribly written. I've often been confused with Ficus as a planar animal, too. So, I mean, yeah, but it, happens. there's worse characters than him, as we'll get into. Uh, so they go back and forth about how one will never love, the other has to bear the pain of love, and uh, by that logic, the pain of a toothache makes it endearing. You know, just stupid nonsense. And they go back to their positions, and Quark makes a mental star note that he just argued the concept of love with the plant and lost. Oh, but he's lost so much more by taking this role. <laughs> Doesn't say much for him, yeah. Uh, yes, the pain of this show certainly did not make it endearing. So, cutting back to the space station Perma-1, Palindrome contacts the head to tell him that the Gorgons have now made it as far as the planet Sparta, and they're approaching on that planet. And the head says, well, the Spartans, you know, they're the fiercest warriors in the galaxy. If the Gorgons can be stopped, it'll be during this battle. It's like, well, what about the source? Why don't you give it to the Spartans? Just doesn't make sense. So, we next cut to the Gorgon ship, which, how'd you guys like the look of this thing? This is my, my clearest memory of the show uh, from when it first aired, was the uh, Gorgon ship. Basically just a stylized pink uh, Darth Vader helmet yeah. in space. <laughs> With like gold sparkles almost. It was the disco era. But yeah, so ripping off imagery from the Star Wars movies. So cutting inside of this Gorgon ship, we see men in black rubber uniforms, uh, almost like body armor, or they're umpires or something. And we then also see the High Gorgon, a man in a Darth Vader-like helmet, just minus the mask. He looks, he looks almost like Chevy Chase here. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought, too. <laughs> What's Chevy Chase doing in this? <laughs> I've been that hard up at this point. What's he, what's he doing in this... Trying to get out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Better or something. This is actually Henry Silva, also very well known as the voice of Bane from Batman the Animated Series and some of the other DC animated series. But this is just a terrible villain for your show. I mean, obviously he's got the, the Darth Vader-like helmet going on, so we know he's the bad guy. Uh, the, the crew are praising him as the master of the galaxy. Uh, we also notice that he's missing his right hand. He has some sort of metal base that he can attach things to. But the, the High Gorgon now walks over to a porthole with a view of the planet Sparta. You can see this blue planet. Uh, he attaches a communication device to his hand, and talking into it, he warns the planet that they will be shown compassion, honor, and patience if they unconditionally surrender in 20 seconds. Or he'll blow them out to the galaxy. So in response, there's Pyrrhos, the leader of the Spartans. He communicates back we hear his voice and they refuse to cooperate as the high gorgon begins to count down and pyros you know obviously they are a, a very strong planet of warriors he says you know your threats don't frighten me so he tells pyros to look and see his spaceship but pyros says oh all we see is a large maroon planet and the gorgon replies well that is my spaceship and then pyros says uh just give us a few minutes to move our things out of the palace and the, the La canned Q laughter, laughter. <laughs> the canned laughter goes crazy. <laughs> I love the fact that you show the, the the shot of the spaceship and also the planet side by side, and you kind of expect it to be you know, like, okay, it's some perspective going on. The spaceship's really in front of it, yeah. but no, it's supposed to be the same size as the planet. Is what yeah, basically they're saying. That's what they're implying. 
that they were implying, and I, the the lack of of any physics, anything at all, knowledge or or you know, is especially is exasperating. Especially when you consider that later in the episode, you see the uh, the garbage scow right beside the uh, the Gorgon ship, and all of a sudden, it's either not. Uh, planet-sized anymore, or the gar- garbage scow is uh, apparently the size of a continent. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, the garbage scow has three hundred decks apparently. So, yeah, scale becomes a problem. <laughs> yeah, they didn't consider it at all. So that's the that's the problem. <laughs> so, cutting back to Perma One, the head is shocked to see that the Spartans were so easily conquered, and he said that he's known the Spartans to plunder entire planets just for the sheer fun of it. And now their only hope is Quark, and of course Palindrome is sitting there rolling his eyes. Well, what other purpose would there be to plundering a planet? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, the fun of it. And what kind of, you know, this is a, a united, peaceful galaxy, but oh yeah, there's a planet that goes around robbing people for fun. <laughs> Maybe it's united like a family, a big dysfunctional family. Yes. So, cutting back to the garbage ship, Quark is pressing buttons, he's flipping switches, you know, what? again, terrible, terrible set, you have to see this for yourself. Uh, he asked Gene, this is our introduction to this character, he's the ship's engineer, played by Tim Thomerson, if they can hold their current speed, and uh, Gene says, oh yeah, he'll, you know, have, have it all going or whatever. But he is the transmute that Quark referred to earlier in the show. Which I think is kind of offensive. It is. It's well, any, kind of offensive for any time or, or or anything. This this was a time when uh, when Fritos were advertising using the Frito Bandito theme. So, <laughs> yeah, this is not a politically correct time. Uh, b- basically, as a transmute, we learn that Gene has a split personality. There's Gene, G E N E, who is very macho and aggressive. He loves to fight, while Gene. J-E-A-N is very peaceful and cowardly. How delightful. And has a horribly overdubbed voice. And Incidentally, in the uh, pilot, it's it's worse. Really? Because they don't they don't use an overdubbed voice. Instead, it's the actor just takes a, a very effeminate voice on. Oh and it makes it even more offensive. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm, wow. I'm glad they saw the error of their way in that and decide to uh, class things up a little bit by overdubbing a female actor, actress. It beat the list that he was talking with. Oh, no. Before. Really? Pizza. Yes. It was that bad. Ugh. That's horrific. Well, next the characters get even crappier because a very crappy looking <laughs> robot named Andy approaches. Now, I thought Andy was a piece of, like, the set. I didn't even know. Once, once he started moving, I went, oh, that's the robot? And he walks over and he's like, oh, this mission is no place for cowards, and he begs to be taken home. How, how would you guys describe the look of Andy, the android? A well, third grade science project. <laughs> well, perhaps uh, we, we, we can get a better sense of, of his appearance. Uh, if, I, if I quote from the, from the uh, Woodward Bernstein interview with Andy the android... Ugh. That uh, according to that, he claims descent from R two D two and Robbie the robot. Wow. Yeah, he descends from something. Sir, I know R two D two. I've seen R two D two, and you are no R two D two. Now, do you think there's a little person inside this, or? Yes, oh my God. He is. His name is Bobby Porter. 
He played Roddy McDowell's son in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. He also appeared in Poseidon Adventure. And in yet another tie-in to Galactica 1980, he also appeared in Earthquake. Oh, oh nice. <laughs> so, Lily, I demand an apology for that. Oh, my God, because I was correct. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Oh. <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. I well, was wrong. You know. So, yeah, and Steve is also referring to our Galactica 1980 episode. If you have not listened to that, please go back and, and check that out in our archives. Uh, just uh, from similar uh, similar times, a little later, 1980, just uh, just as crappy. And please not judge the whole Battlestar Galactica franchise on that one series. Thank you. No, <laughs> nobody does. You can't. So they're annoyed by Andy here, and they say, well, we have the source. And Andy says, well, I'd rather have a gun. It's like a robot that shoots people. How charming. <laughs> so Gene now he's going on with his overly macho persona saying how much he hates the Gorgons and he dreams about them and he wants to crush them and all of their friends the Blotons the pod people he, and he's going on and on and I, I love how they how they go around the ship he grabs a metal bar and he slides feet first down a chute bringing him to the next place that Quark ended up because uh, he had left the room it's just like a, just like slides from a playground is how they go around yeah, apparently the uh, show was uh, filmed at a uh, local uh, McDonald's Playland. <laughs> it was one that closed down. And they had to get. They bought some of the uh, parts there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So now, after Gene goes through the slide and he stands up, he he meets up with Quark again. But now he's primping his hair, and with a lady's voice, he says, "I'm sorry, Commander. I can't get into this mission." As he walks away. Quark next makes another mental star note, saying that having both sets of male and female chromosomes make Gene a very unusual person. Which is highly offensive. And the crowd laughs like crazy. Yes. Uh... Oh, and one one more thing we should mention about Gene is that, you know, he, he switches personalities from male to what they call female, and this happens at random, and sometimes at comedically inopportune times. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, and according to the show, you know, female means cowardly. So we put that in quotes. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we next cut to the ship's mess hall where Ficus, the Bettys, and Jean sit around a, a table of, looks like small red, yellow, and blue cylinders. I don't know, they eating pepper and salt? <laughs> the Bettys remark that this is the best mission, but... Jean, still in the J-E-A-N mode, says that she just prefers the arts. You know, the arts, like a woman. (laughs) (laughs) She also prefers cooking and uh, taking care of her husband. Wow. I might die if we talk about this. (laughs) I might just spontaneously combust because of this show. It's so terrible. So Quark walks over and he places that item draped with a black cloth at the center of the table, saying that now it's time to release the source. Why now? Who knows? So everybody stands up and dramatic music plays. Quark removes the cloth, he opens the lid, and the rest of the crew looks on, but nothing happens. And, you know, he's looking around. Source! Source! And Andy's, uh, again, being cowardly, saying they should turn back. Quark asks Ficus if there are any readings, and he's giving him this whole line filled with fake technical jargon, but when Quark asks for it in plain English, Ficus says that the energy in the room is going up. You know how plants have that innate ability to detect energy? Of course, yes. 
Now, does anybody else uh, at this point want the source to be massive amounts of radiation to kill them all? Because <laughs> that's what I was uh, I was thinking. Yeah. Well, okay, just 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 to back things up, uh, because I, I did watch the uh, pilot as well as this uh, for background. So so I'm to be pitied. Yes. But your question about what they eat. Oh yeah. I was thinking that it was in this episode, but it must have been in the pilot that we see what they eat when uh, they they sit down at the uh, table and uh, talking about oh what a great meal it's going to be and what's on the menu. And then these tubes are lowered down from the uh, from the ceiling, apparently, that they uh, stuff onto their faces and a lump of something. <laughs> it shoots down like, like through a pneumatic tube, and then they pull the tube away, wipe their mouths, and boy, that was good. Uh. It's like the meat tubes at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Give me some of that sour cream tube. I want to, you know... Yeah, because that's appetizing. You want everything just excreted <laughs> right into your face. Uh, tubes. Ugh. Very hygienic, too. <laughs> so I, thought, I thought that's what was coming up, and then realized, oh, wait a minute, that's the pilot. Ugh, thankfully, I didn't have to see that. Ugh. So anyway, the energy in the room is going up, and a disembodied voice announces, I am the source! And they look around, and, and Quark asks where it is, you know, and it replies, I'm everywhere and everything. I was like, no, you're not everything, because you are contained within a, a container. Uh, but Quark then says, well, how do we use you to defeat the dreaded Gorgons? And the source replies, you must believe in me, but the belief must be complete and genuine. And oh my goodness. Incidentally, if the source is everywhere and everything, then you wouldn't use the source. The source would use you. It would be like the concept of the force, which, yeah, it's a little abstract, but it's it's more fleshed out as a concept than this thing. <laughs> this is terrible. So it, it, the, well, let's face it, the force is pretty thin. It, it, it well, yes, but it, it's still better than this thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so. You know, Quark says, yeah, I believe. And, oh, man, will we get into the belief of the source in this episode? So he's like, oh, yeah, I believe in you. So the source tells him to remove Andy the Robot's gyro bearing, which, of course, is located in the crotch area. Andy's awfully excited, too, when he's taking that ball bearing out. He got his <laughs> arms uh, you know, moving around like crazy. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, and Andy remarks that now he's full of anger and Quark's hands are cold. Just terrible. So the source next orders everybody to fire at Quark with their gamma guns until he says to stop. And Quark is a little reluctant. And basically what's going to happen is the the source is going to guide Quark. And he's going to use this baseball-sized ball bearing to deflect the gamma rays. It's, it's almost like a take on Luke's Jedi training where he had that floating ball. Almost, but it fails Not spectacularly. Not and gamma rays are incredibly lethal. They had it modulated to the pinprick set. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> These are guns they use to kill other aliens with or stop them in any way. It looks like phasers are set to tickle. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they, they don't just go like laser beams or whatever or light beams. They say very specifically gamma radiation. Very, very deadly. Uh, very high frequency radiation. And he's getting hit with it and like, ooh, ooh, because it's like, 
he's not good at first, and he is getting hit. Uh, presumably, there's tissue death and, and some terrible things happening at those sites where he oh, was that, hit. that stings. <laughs> he would hope that tissue death would happen at this point. Uh, you can't even stop gamma rays with thick concrete, uh, let alone... <laughs> a terrible jumpsuit. The uh, private parts of Andy the robot over there made of cardboard and duct tape. <laughs> hey, come on. <laughs> so the source tells him, well, it didn't work because you didn't believe. And Quark complains, I was doing something. It's just really terrible. So they try it again, and this time it works. Uh, Quark's holding the baseball-sized ball bearing at arm's length, deflecting the beams. Most of them, anyway. Again, he's still getting a couple of them. But, ah, uh, just a flesh wound, really. And their shooting is so precise. I mean, it must have had a specially trained uh, gunsmith on the set, a set to train them how to properly fire a weapon. It looks so realistic. I mean, I Oh, yes. Yes, these green, green animated beams flying at him, superimposed on the footage. Very, very crappily done. So the source makes its point. Basically, if they believe in it, it can do anything. But that's the key. They gotta believe in it. So at that very moment, a red rectangle on the wall begins to blink, and one of the Bettys says that she's detecting the Gorgon ship, so they're ordered to their stations. And uh, we, we see the Gorgon ship, and, and Quark makes another star note. Be calm, Quark. Be calm. They switch back and forth from, like, total broad comedy to these moments where they're really trying to be tense and serious, and it just does not work. Right now, they're too small to be discovered by the ship, and the source says, you know, fly over to the Gorgon ship's seventh quadrant because they want to go to the power center, and it's nearby. Uh, they're, the Gorgon ship finally detects them. They say, you know, identify yourselves, but they ignore it. They're so confident that they have the source on their side. And then the source starts backpedaling and talking about, well, the Gorgon ship is pretty big and it's pretty fast. I, I had no idea. I'm not sure now. You know, it's it's been 200 years and I, I, you get rusty. Things change. It's like, it's so stupid. And at this point, the, the source takes on, instead of a heroic, you know, melodramatic voice, into a more kind of schleppy voice. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is, uh, I guess, supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be. Uh, so, the source now says, Trust me, and the ship is pulled up into the Gorgon ship by a green tractor beam as we cut to commercial. So, at this point, the show goes into a commercial break, so why don't we take this opportunity to take a commercial break ourselves, we'll pay some bills, and we'll be right back. Hello listeners, have you ever thought that someone who was making a Minecraft video was too good at it? Well, you should watch Intercoder then. I know absolutely nothing about what I'm doing. This is really hilarious, you might want to watch it. I do adventure maps, mod showcases, and survival. And I just think you might like it. Bye! And we're back! So when we return, uh, Quirk and crew, they're now inside of the Gorgon ship. But because the source got confused, they arrived at the 7th quadrant, and it's really supposed to be the 4th. Uh, that's where the power center is, so they got to do a little bit of traveling. So they draw their weapons and they exit, leaving Andy the robot to stall the guards. And so some of the Gorgon guards enter the, the ship, and Andy's trying to convince them that he's the only one there. He's the one that runs it by himself, and he tries to man some of the controls to prove it, and the thing starts catching fire, and ha ha ha. And they take him away to the High Gorgon. There's some terrible moments here where the crew is sneaking around and the Bettys end up shooting one of the guards and 
doing low fives and hip bumps and everything to celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Probably no, the best you, part of the episode. <laughs> their guns here end up freezing people. Yeah, that, that was the stupidest thing I ever saw. I'm, I, is it because they just didn't want to show a dead body? Or uh, I, I, I don't know. It seems that way, doesn't it? I think it was for insurance reasons. That falling down is dangerous. Someone could have gotten hurt. They didn't want to pay claims. <laughs> Being on the show is dangerous for many reasons. Watching it is dangerous. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh. So from here we cut back to the High Gorgon. He now attaches a fake hand to the metal stump and he's stiffly rubbing his chin in contemplation. And man, the canned laughter loved this gag. I'm glad it did. Prosthetics is wacky. Yes, yes, evidently. So the High Gorgon senses the presence of the source. Kind of like another movie that I, I just can't put my finger on. But anyway, uh, a guard asks if it's dangerous. And the High Gorgon replies, only if it's on your side. Ha ha ha. So cutting back to the crew, continuing to quietly sneak around the corridors and stairways of the Gorgon ship. This is very much an office building. It's so terribly done. It looks amazingly like uh, Perma One for some reason too. I don't, I don't, I, I can't figure out why. <laughs> the corridors look remarkably similar. I, uh, it's amazing, huh? If this thing's really planetary scale, now this is where you could actually use some slides to get around. But no, they've got stairs. But the uh, <laughs> but the garbage scow, which has got like three decks, oh, they've got slides. Yes. I mean, the Gorgons are big proponents of uh, physical fitness. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, the fact that they have 12 guards on the entire ship is really, uh, you know, telling of their budget constraints, too. So so next we see Andy in front of the High Gorgon, and, you know, Andy waves and says, Hi, I've heard a lot of good things about you, and he's basically threatened to be destroyed. And so Andy reveals, well, the source is on the ship, and he's being controlled by Adam Quark. He doesn't mean to reveal it, but he does. And the Gorgon orders him to be destroyed anyway. And uh, Andy says, do you know who you're dealing with? The High Gorgon replies, a cowardly android who would lie, cheat, gro and grovel to save his own miserable, pathetic little existence. And Andy says, well, so long as you know. I genuinely laughed at that line. <laughs> I actually cheered when we're going to kill him. <laughs> and so uh, cutting back to, to Quark and, and the crew, they reach a fork in the hallway and it's, you know, this whole big thing about the source kind of helps them, then it doesn't want to help them. It keeps going back and forth about, well, you don't believe in me. It's like, well, they're talking to you. They obviously believe in you. So Quark, he's like, all right, the source is no help. So he goes left. And there they encounter guards and flee. And they have to leave Gene behind in an elevator. And the Gorgons go in there with him and take Gene to another level. So he's separate from the group. So Quark tells the Bettys that when they go to the power center, they got to use his communicator to contact Perma-1 and tell Palindrome not to surrender. Then they got to find Gene and go back to the ship, and if he's not back within two hours, just take off without him. And the, the Bettys are now clinging to him, praising him in the past tense. And so now the source guides Quark and Ficus further, but more, you know, confrontation with Gorgon guards, and Ficus stays to cover Quark while he escapes and continues on. So Ficus next gets the gunshot out of his hand, he surrenders, and so he's separate from Quark. Quark's now all alone. Meanwhile, the Bettys are trying to call Perma-1 on this, like, view screen communicator, but they're put on hold. Which is hilarious. It's just, this, 
did not need to be 47 minutes long. No. No, it did not. The, the joke really paid off later on, though, about them being on hold from the intergalactic, uh, you know, <laughs> telephone company, so. Yes. So cutting back to Jean, now the elevator doors open, three Gorgons fall lifelessly out, and Jean has, like, a completely tattered uniform, and he's punching his palm, he's ready for more fighting. Uh, we cut back to Quark, and he enters the room that contains the power center, which is... Uh, how would you the describe crappiest, it? The crappiest room ever designed anywhere. It, it, it's so stupid. It's like it's like right out of a, a Sid and Marty Croft show. It, it's a glowing egg on a column in the middle of this big room with lava and flames below it. And, and a monster. Only, yeah, and a monster that lives <laughs> in the, the lava. A, a monster that, that actually apparently dwells in a kiddie pool. <laughs> yes. Oh, a flame. Yes. And the only way to get from the entranceway, the threshold, to the power center is there's, like, a very small, narrow footbridge, like a, a plank that, that it goes across. Yeah, two by four. Now, here's what I want to know. Every time I see one of these things, you know, in Star Wars, etc., has nobody got, you know, railing technology? <laughs> it, it, you know, in what, sort of, uh, in what sort of system does this make sense? Hey, man, the power plant monster has to eat, too. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It doesn't protect it at all. I mean, then they wouldn't... Don't have the footbridge. There's no point to it at all. And if you're going to have it, like you said, have some safety. and You know, have a, a floor over the lava, if you need the lava. <laughs> you know, why doesn't the door just open into a room? This reminds me, I don't know if anybody else saw um, Galaxy Quest... Yes. Which yeah. is the um, spoof, another spoof movie on, you know, like Star Trek type show. And um, who's that star? It stars a guy from Home Improvement. Tim, Tim Allen, Alan Tim Rickman, Allen. Sigourney yes. Weaver. That's true. Sigourney Weaver, I forgot about her. Yeah. There's, there's one scene in that, because this alien, long story short, not to, any spoiler alert here, this alien race designed this TV ship based on transmissions they got from the, the actual Star Trek type show that got beaten to them, and they thought it was a real thing. So they designed a ship to, you know, mimic the actual ones from the show. And there's one scene where these just these pounders like going up and down in the, the hallway for no apparent reason. And they just designed them like that because that's what they saw on the TV show. It reminded me of this. Like, uh, there's no, you know, even aesthetic reason to have this like this. It just, yeah. just why would you need a flaming lava pit to, uh, under your power plant? I mean, uh, so hazardous, yeah. Yeah. OSHA would have a field day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Quark is now instructed by the source to deploy a UTE bomb to destroy the power center. But, in reality, he was never told to bring it. But the source blames Quark for forgetting it. You know, it's, oh, it's your fault. I, I, I told you, and they, they bicker back and forth and all this stuff. But what's a UTE bomb? That's a UTE bomb. Totally different. <laughs> That's all I could think of. I know. But they never tell us what it what it means, right? Made up acronym bomb. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't in the pilot. Okay. So I can't help you there. Yeah, just so we just know it's an explosive device, really. And so of course they don't have one. And just then a guard enters, but he's subdued by the source, kind of. But unfortunately okay. Yeah, it's you know, whatever. But not before a stray beam hits Quark in the face, blinding him. Because, you know, gamma rays hitting you in the eyes. Temporary I think that, blindness. That's worth repeating. 
a laser beam shot him in the face from a, from a weapon. Yes. And <laughs> there was no physical damage done to his face besides him going blind. What that sink in for a minute there. This is what we're dealing with. Yeah, this this t- technology is not much more advanced than a laser pointer, evidently. But yeah, this it's so stupid. And, and now that he's blind, the source taunts him. You, know, you got to trust me now, Quark. And you know, it gets very dramatic, and we cut to commercial. <laughs> oh, what's gonna happen? Uh, uh, I can't wait. Yeah, what's gonna happen? I'm guessing uh, millions of TVs changing channel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> The clicks were audible from space. (laughs) (laughs) So when we return, we see Perma 1, where now a despondent palindrome goes back to his office. I should mention, too, his office is just plain gray, and it's got these brightly colored triangles and squares all over the wall. You know, like, Steve, when you and I did that episode where we talk about Space 1999, even though that was, like, (laughs) cheesy... One redeeming quality was the beautiful set design. You know, it looked really cool. This just looks yeah, terrible. Yeah, actually. It, as, aside from the resin chairs and the uh, card tables for the computers. Yes. But, I'm sorry, did I, did I just refute your point? No, no, well, that's true. We did make fun of the furniture probably for the whole hour, but it, Moonbase Alpha looked really cool. You know, it it the design of it, the interiors, the sets, it, it did look nice. This, though, this yeah. is just... What looks futuristic? Well, squares and triangles that are brightly colored? Just wait till you see how they dance in uh, Buck Rogers in the 21st century. Oh. <laughs> can't can't oh wait. God. So, Palindrome contacts the head just to let him know, you know, the station is fully evacuated, they've lost contact with Quark, the Doomsday ship is closing in, so they should probably give up. And the head reminds him, not so fast, Palindrome, we still have Quark. And that's when Palindrome says, well, that's what I mean, sir. We might as well give up. (laughs) Exactly. So cutting back to the Gorgon ship, uh, Quark is now trying to blindly cross this narrow bridge only by the source's guidance alone. This is the point where I thought, I'd jump. (laughs) (laughs) And that's as a viewer. This is a straight plank. It's flat. It's straight. There's no obstructions. Just take your time and walk straight out. You don't need the source for anything. What's he going to tell you? Go straight ahead? Or just crawl (laughs) and feel the edges. And they're arguing the whole time. The source is saying that, you know, I failed you earlier because you didn't truly believe. And he he goes on and on about not really believing in him. And this will be his test of faith. So Quark is like, you know, getting dramatic now. I I believe. And he slowly walks back about 10 feet. And he's okay. Thank goodness he believed. Yeah, and the source rejoices. Oh, well, nothing can stop us now. Uh, so now we cut back to Ficus. He's being interrogated by the Gorgons. They strap him to a chair, and they have this heat ray over his head. And because he is a plant, actually, I, I didn't mention this before, he is a vegeton. That's the type of species he is. <laughs> isn't, that the, isn't that the stuff you fed me from Australia? Yes, ve- <laughs> yes he's made of Vegemite. Vegemite, yes. <laughs> And so, basically, they want to know where the source is, and Ficus won't talk. Putting Ficus uh, under a heat lamp, isn't that really... Well, what's that supposed to do? Make him photosynthesize? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's amazing they have the perfect plant-torturing room there, too. 
you know, yeah. the exact requirements to, to torture a ficus. So that's that's convenient. <laughs> so next we cut to a scene that I liked. We watch Andy about to get his head severed by giant bolt cutters. And man, he's going right, he's going right for it. We all anticipated this with, with glee. <laughs> and we get some terrible, terrible physical acting here because Andy starts trying to beg for his life. But during his groveling, the Gorgon with the bolt cutters trips and kind of slowly falls to the side and drops the tool. And Andy is like pleading for his life. And as he does, he steps forward, knocking the Gorgon to his side. And that makes him unconscious for some reason. And so Andy's able to escape. Pretty sure the actor in this scene just decided to die. (laughs) (laughs) So we cut back to the Bettys. They're still on hold trying to contact Perma-1. There's a a short film about trout fishing on Pluto that plays while they're on hold. Apparently Pluto's a fiery hell. Yeah, yeah. With trout. I always thought it was, you know, the furthest planet from the sun. Microplanet, whatever it is considered. Dwarf planet, yeah. Dwarf planet, so... All the pictures I ever saw, it was cold and didn't have lava on it, but I guess I was mistaken. That was part of the 2011 unification. Did you miss that? I did, yes. Sorry. Maybe it's uh, like like cold fusion. It, it's it's cold lava. <laughs> cold lava, of course. Oh, okay. That explains <laughs> the power center. All right. Uh, so this is a very interesting part of the episode because while they're waiting, the two Bettys, there's no one around. And all of a sudden, this Gorgon man in a purple suit approaches. They're trying to play cool. They're like, oh, well, let's speak a different language. So they start speaking Spanish and then pretending not to know one another. It makes no sense. But this Gorgon guy, he looks like a human. So that means the other Gorgons in the big black suits, they are humans as well, just wearing armor. So the Gorgons are just people. I got confused for a second. I wasn't sure if they're on Perma-1 or the Gorgon ship. For some reason, I, I can't tell you why. <laughs> yeah, these these are Gorgons. There's me- and well, you know, more show up later. There's men, women. They look like just regular people. Gorgons are people, just like Soylent Green. <laughs> just like the Plant Man, the Ficus. Uh, so now we cut back to Ficus, and he keeps derailing his interrogation. He's picking apart every one of their words, and he's expounding on the natures of time and death. It's it's just exhausting to watch. Yeah, this this is the exact point where I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, you're you're in for a treat then. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's stupid. They're getting nothing out of him. Uh, so back to Quark. He's still blind, and he's trying to navigate through the corridors, relying on the source. And the source tells him, "Get your gun ready and barge into the room where Ficus is being held." So he does, of course. And now he's comically pointing the gun the wrong way. And he makes them release Ficus and walks into the wall on his way out. I like how the idiot guards don't put their hands down even though they left the room. Yeah, or it's like, he is obviously blind. Um, yeah. Why are you afraid of Tackle him? Tackle him. <laughs> yeah. Tickle him with your gamma rays. <laughs> now keep in mind, this is only, what, five years before Return of the Jedi? Where we see Han Solo do something very similar, getting blinded and comically bumble around and save the day. It's precious. I do enjoy their hats, the guards' hats. That looks like uh, jock straps over them. I thought that was, <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> uh, 
So, back on Perma 1, Palindrome informs the head that, you know, the bad news, the Gorgon ship is going to be within range within the hour. And uh, he then starts to talk about, oh, you know, I was born on Perma 1, I love it here, but he suggests that he and the head take off to a faraway galaxy in his secret ship filled with stimulating companions and ambrosia. It's like, what? So he has a, a ship full of um, ladies of the night waiting for him? Apparently. I think this is the best idea so far in this show, to be honest with you. <laughs> and he's hitting on the head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that mean going to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but just this whole idea that, oh, the whole time that he's working on this space station, Palindrome has this secret space shuttle filled with whatever stimulating companions are and whatever ambrosia is. I'm, I'm guessing women and drugs. It was a 70s, so I mean, come on. I guess, but what what a weird thing to say. I have no <laughs> Just no input. It's terrible. So, anyway, throughout all this, the head is like, no, no, I don't want to hear this. He assures him Quark will come through. And uh, Palindrome kind of gets defiant. He's screaming about how there's nobody left. And, you know, you don't have any authority over me. We're practically equals. And even though the head tells Palindrome to stop, Palindrome is like, what are you going to do, bite me? <laughs> well, I mean, rejection hurts. Bite <laughs> your legs off. So back to the Gorgon ship, Ficus comes up with some complicated plan to make a bomb with more technical jargon. So Quark makes another star note saying that it's been only 20 minutes since his rescue of Ficus and regret is already settling in. For us, it's about 30 minutes in regret have been <laughs> settling in. So they encounter a Gorgon ambush, and the situation now is described as hopeless for some reason. I don't know why, but in comes Andy, acting brave, saving the day, basically just walking towards the guards very slowly, acting as a shield for Quark and Ficus. Just the, the action, the jokes, the set, the special effects. This is just uh, terrible in every aspect. It's really overpowering. <laughs> like a stench. Like a bad odor, yeah. Like the garbage they pick up. In this one, Richard Benjamin was was fresh off of the uh, triumph of uh, Love at First Bite, I'll point out to you. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. Oh, my goodness. This bites as well. (laughs) So the three now leave to hide in an air vent as we cut back to the Betty still on hold, and they're holding up a huge line of more Gorgons in purple costumes. Men, women, and, and dresses. This really makes you know no sense why these gorgons are human looking it explains why the the high gorgon looks like chevy chase in a darth vader helmet (laughs) so the bettys are still holding up the line and you know everyone's grumbling and complaining uh cutting back to the air vent ficus informs quark that well because he's lost faith again now the source is fading and dying and the only way of getting the the parts to make the bomb is, is by getting the source to guide them so they need to have more faith in the source. And this is just so stupid that the, now the source can die if you don't have faith in him, if you don't believe in him. This is the source's Tinkerbell moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clap <laughs> your hands, children, if you believe in Tinkerbell. Oh. If you believe in fairies. And so he, he asks, you know, like, what what can I do? And, and the source asks for a cheer. He says, you know, he, so they start cheering. We want the source. We want the source. Incidentally, how did the source uh, survive those uh, two centuries uh, in between its last use and now without a cheering squad? So lazily written. 
Yeah, I think I found the flaw in the plot that well, just ruins the whole show for me. <laughs> I can't believe any of this now. <laughs> in six years, there's not going to be no rebellion to be put down. There'll be no quasar insurrection. <laughs> no tickling gamma lasers. <laughs> oh, the dream well, well, those are real. <laughs> they just don't tickle. <laughs> gamma it tickle before you die but you know yeah yeah a split second so they're cheering the high gorgon happens to overhear this because you know they're in the air vent and he laughs as he attaches a mace to the stump on his arm saying that the source will take care of quark so now the source comes back it regains its power and glow and it's oh, richard benjamin's face now as he regains his sight he's like oh i can see and we cut to commercial. So when we return, Quark, Ficus, and Andy are standing at the entrance of the power center room with a very sophisticated <laughs> explosive device already made. So that was convenient. Well, I'm just glad they didn't show us show them making it. I mean, it uh, could have been worse. Uh, it's true. So they want to set the timer for an hour. The source says, nah, do it in 20 minutes. We'll be done by then. And so they, they compromise by setting it for a half an hour. And they put it next to the power center and they leave. So, cutting back to Perma-1, Palindrome is still in the middle of criticizing the head, and the High Gorgon calls in. And now we get a, a three-way conversation. Palindrome is sucking up to him, warmly welcoming him to Perma-1, and the head refuses to surrender, saying that the source will take care of him. When you put down the explosive, you think you would have put it, like, behind it, instead of just right in front of it? Just to, just in case someone wandered by and saw that there was an explosive next to the, or some kind of weird device next to the power core? <laughs> That's true. I mean, just kind of daintily puts it down as you know, far away as you can get from uh, the actual ball. <laughs> the magic egg. The magic, yeah, magic egg, and I'm not thinking ahead there. So, since they were Skyping anyway, Palindrome picks up on the call from the Bettys. They, evidently, they were on hold, and he could tell. Finally, he picks up, and one Betty speaks, while the other distracts the Gorgons by bending over. And uh, she's pretending that she has a problem with her heel. <laughs> And we get the comic response from all the Gorgons looking at, you know, her, they, her behind. They break out into applause. They all start clapping. Just, they're revolting. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, this is awesome. This uh, knocks so, women's rights back by like five years. Oh, no kidding. So she tells him that Quark has in fact gotten through and they shouldn't surrender. And Palindrome is shocked that Quark is actually succeeding, and so he backpedals a little bit, his defiance towards the head. Uh, back on the Gorgon Doomsday ship, the crew, minus Gene, reunites with about 17 minutes left on the bomb's timer. When we cut to Gene, uh, he's trying to sneak his way back to the crew through the corridors, and he overhears some of the Gorgon guards insulting the people of Perma-1 and the United Galaxy. And he's just, like, trying to resist that urge to go in there and fight, and it's just too much. And he jumps in, and the timer is now down to 13 minutes. Literally jumps in. Yeah. <laughs> Into the <At> camera. <laughs> <laughs> so, meanwhile, uh, Quark and the crew, they're, they're waiting for Gene's return. The timer's down to nine minutes. And the source reminds them to believe. It's like, shut up. We believe in you. Everyone believes in you. But why does it even matter now? The bomb's already set. They're just making the getaway. They don't need his help anymore. They could let him die. Drop the container in the lava, you know? 
So all of a sudden, Gene shows up. He speeds down the corridor in a cart-like vehicle, being chased by three Gorgons. And did you guys notice? He took a really nasty head-first spill into the wall as his cart collides. Oh, no, I missed that. Oh, you gotta go back and see this, Steve. It is ridiculous. Like, the stuntman is dead. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote that in my notes. Like, Gene is dead, right? Like, he doesn't show up in any more episodes. It was a suicide. (laughs) Now, is it it Gene is dead or G-E-A-N is dead? Oh, he was very much the aggressive Gene at this point. Okay, I forget. Yeah, I can't. I noticed in the background some of their props are painted propane tanks, which is very uh, clever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Apparently it's the shipping and receiving section of the uh, the Gorgon uh, ship. It's where they do their barbecuing. Yes. <laughs> so Quark uh, sends Ficus on the ship with the rest of the crew while he stops to rescue Gene by blasting the three Gorgons, you know, freezing them in place. It's so stupid. So just when it looks like the coast is clear, the High Gorgon shows up to confront Quark, swinging at him with his mace hand and calling him a garbage man. How does he know? That's true. You know, he he mentions it earlier when he is interrogating Andy, the android, mentioning like uh, about the ship, like the garbage man. Yeah, why why does the high Gorgon care about this menial garbage man? That's two plot holes. Yeah, just two. <laughs> Forty seven at this point. Uh, so at one point in this fight, the high Gorgon has Quark pinned. With the mace, like, right in front of his face. All the little spikes. And the source tells Gorgon... This is really weird. See if you guys picked up on this. The source tells Gorgon that his doomsday ship blowing up, which, you know, he's saying it will happen, is revenge for the cruel things said by his great-great-great-grandfather. I don't know. (laughs) So So the source had a reason to fight. Like, he had his own personal vendetta here. Because the High Gorgon's ancestor said some disparaging comments apparently really weird and so he he tells quark that once again he needs to believe to win the fight and he won't even need a weapon (laughs) so the high gorgon swings and misses about eighty thousand times and eventually gets his mace hand stuck in the wall technically it's a morning star the the mace yes okay i apologize (laughs) the spikes make it a morning star really okay i didn't know that there's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons at that time, too. <laughs> oh, so, finally, we get one piece of information we can use out of this episode. That's <laughs> right. One fact we can take away. Okay, so the Morning Star gets stuck in the wall, and uh, here the High Gorgon struggles comedically. You know, like, oh, uh, uh, trying to get his arm out. Probably forgot he could just detach it, you know? Exactly! Unless, of course, the Morning Star is the one that's uh, the spiked ball connected to the handle by a chain. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. I'm pretty sure that's a flail. I, well, yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right. Well, Morning Star is the company that makes uh, veggie sausages, right? Yes. <laughs> I think that's what you're thinking of. Okay. It's also Venus. I love how this is the interesting topic of conversation. <laughs> During this Way more interesting scene. than anything else we've been talking about. <laughs> Apologies to the listener. These will get better. I'm 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 shocked to find out that um, walls of starships are made out of plaster, it seems like. Very dangerous. Propane tanks everywhere, rooms of lava, plaster walls. I mean, it's it's horrible. You know, you think one one strong left turn and this thing explodes on its own. Yeah, there's no, yeah. 
It's an ocean nightmare. <laughs> so the high Gorgon is like really struggling to get free and he can't. At this point, Gene wakes up and I guess the head trauma made him switch personalities again. And he has the vapors as they uh, <laughs> walk away. I wrote, I wrote that I wrote that in my notes like typical woman fainting yeah. due to massive head trauma. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so delicate, so, you know. Can't survive a head-on collision. <laughs> so weak. <laughs> Email drivers. <laughs> no, he crashed as a male. That's important to to, to note. Yep. Well, maybe he was going through the change right then. Oh my goodness. I don't want to think of Gene going through the change. <laughs> Anyway. By the way, that double entendre was twice as funny as anything in the show. <laughs> in your face, Buck Henry. Uh, so, Quark helps Gene board the ship now, and we cut to the power center. We see that the timer is mercifully down to one minute left. And uh, the, the garbage ship flees, and they watch the Gorgon ship explode on a video screen, and they cheer as everyone dies. The men, the women, the children... They're all I didn't dead. Even think about that. All those people waiting for their phone call are, are now dead. Yeah, and presumably there's families. Yep. This was not just the uh, the black armored like soldiers, the Gorgon guards. No, they're this was inhabited like a planet. Mm. All dead. Yeah. Maybe they thought that Andy the android was still on that. <laughs> oh, Andy, you're right behind us. Oh. Uh, oh well. <laughs> so the Bettys now praise Quark, calling him the biggest hero in the history of the United Galaxy. And the source also demands some thanks. Uh, just then, the Quark receives an audio transmission from the High Gorgon, who informs him that, Oh, I escaped on my private space shuttle. And I hold you, Quark, personally responsible for the destruction of the ship. And, of course, he swears his revenge. And, and Gene Quark's... pulls his gun, too, for some reason. Oh, does he? Yeah. <laughs> what was he doing? He's pulling his gun at nothing. So, so Quark is cringing and fretting as he's hearing this. You know, he's really doing the, uh, you know, the, the Abbott and Costello, like, pulling of the collar and stuff. And so he then excuses himself and slides down a chute, shouting, Oh, Grot! Which, that's one thing I think we forgot to mention, is a couple of times they say, Oh, Grot! And that's supposed to be, like, a future swear. Yes. So it's like, watch your language. <laughs> uh, so oh, we next... So we next cut back to Perma 1. Everything's back to normal. Rooms are crowded again. People are doing some sort of work. Uh, you know, who knows? And Palindrome praises Quark, saying, Oh, I, you know, I never lost faith in you. And Despite Quark's success in saving the galaxy, Palindrome won't promote him from garbage duty. But, you know, hey, maybe I'll talk to the head after a few more successful missions like this one. No, no thanks. And so we get this sappy scene. Like, they're not even playing this for humor, where... Quark walks back into that darkened room and he tells the source that it's time to go back into the orb. And the source is sad and he doesn't want to go. <laughs> the source blames Quark again, like, well, remember, you forgot to bring the bomb. They mistakenly thought that anyone would actually care about the source at this point or any of these characters. He's a terrible character. We want to see him go. I think they're uh, setting the stage for, uh, for a future episode when uh, the source exacts revenge on Quark's great-grandson. <laughs> yeah. Your great-grandfather forgot the bomb! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, the source blames him, oh, you forgot the bomb, and Quark says, come on, source, you don't want to go out like this. You want to go out strong and brave. And, you know, it's like uh, trying to act with some sincerity, but this is so stupid. 
he holds out his palm to a beam of light and pretends to walk it back to the orb in the center of the room. So now it's tangible? <laughs> it's, like a, it's a Tinkerbell, I'm telling you. It's yeah, fairy. it really is. Actually, if the source is, is everywhere and everything, it was already in the middle of the room. Yeah, it was everything. It was a part of him. It was an extension of him. It, it makes absolutely no sense. Three plot holes. <laughs> and so they have some ridiculously sappy conversation. It continues ending with the source announcing itself. I am the source. And it goes back into the orb and we cut to commercial. So when we return, we get another shot of Perma-1, the floating urinal cake. And cutting inside, we see Quark in Palindrome's office being promoted to commander of his own starship by the head. And so now Quark asks, can my crew be promoted with me? Since much of my success was thanks to them. But the head informs him that the rest of the crew has to remain with the garbage vessel. So Quark declines the promotion. And the, the head quickly accepts and hangs up. Very well. <laughs> and Palindrome kind of compliments him. He says, you know, this is the noblest thing I've ever heard and also the dumbest. Quark was really hoping that the head would go back and forth with him a little bit and be like, well, maybe your crew can come later, or, you know, maybe we'll see. He didn't expect that quick of, you know, like, a very well. And so he's, like, muttering to himself about, you know, why, why wouldn't he let me take them along and all this stuff. And he walks down the corridor, still talking to himself in disbelief of what quickly just took place. And that is mercifully... The end of the episode. At which point, the show, when it ends, apparently in the original run, and I think it's safe to say the only run of the show, it was followed on schedule by CPO Sharky. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, the Don Rickles vehicle. Yes. Oy, oy, oy. Uh, that, that's for another episode. <laughs> so, you know, that was a pleasant evening in front of the TV. <laughs> but, you know, I do have to say, again, reading from the uh, back of the uh, DVD box set, mm -hmm. I have to agree with uh, one of the uh, comments that they had written on there. They, they correctly claim that uh, Quark is, quote, as smart and funny today as when it first stared. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Smart and funny. So now, you know, I, I feel like I'm a part of a survivor's group here. We got through that episode. <laughs> what, are, what are everybody's thoughts upon watching this show for the episode of the podcast? Lily, we'll start with you. <sighs> okay. I see what it was trying to do. And I applaud the concept. Uh, this show is a little brain-melting, pretty offensive, even for a product of its time. I'm, like, not into that at all. Uh, I would have rather watched parts The Clonus Horror without Mystery Science Theater commenting over it. Because at least there wasn't rampant misogyny and transphobia, so... <laughs> Sean? Uh, yeah, it's I, I feel the same way as Lily. It, it's just, I guess on somebody's drawing board or paper where they wrote this thing, it at one point was a good idea. I'm assuming it happened after a long night of amphetamine use. <laughs> um, and it just, 
how it got greenlit after the pilot, and I didn't see the pilot, I just heard about it from Steve and from reading about it. I mean, you could put, like, snow would be a better alternative to a, a open s- spot as a mid-season replacement to this. It just wasn't <laughs> a good show, and it just it was a stinker, and it makes me... But that was the late 70s. I mean, there was a lot of stinkers like that. I'm sure at one point we'll be reviewing most of them also. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just... I feel really sad that it it came to life the same time I did. And it makes me <laughs> rethink my existence quite a bit. Maybe it's your source. <laughs> <laughs> it's a part of you, no, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. It's everywhere and everything. <laughs> that could explain the therapy I've required over the years. Yeah, so that's... I gotta say, though, if, if you have a fetish for this type of show for some unknown reason... <laughs> There is a better medium in that it was produced. I actually tweeted this out a couple of days ago. I don't know if anybody's ever played the um, Space Quest games. Um, no. No, it, they were in the mid-80s and 90s. They're really kind of a, a, a funny PC games by Sierra. I think them on Mac, too. And when I was a kid, did the games like to play King's Quest, Space Quest. But Space Quest was more of a parody-type video game about a space janitor named Roger Wilco who gets into adventures and, you know... It's kind of a dope. But there is one of the games, that was actually Space Quest V, that came out in 1993. You could probably still find it online somewhere. And it has almost the exact storyline of, of Quark. Huh. There is a spaceship, <laughs> and their job is, you know, he's uh, the leader of this crappy crew. And the spaceship is actually shaped like a little vacuum cleaner, like a handheld vacuum cleaner. I think it's actually called the USS Hoover or something. And that, and it's the same kind of story as this episode where they have to defeat, you know, they're the last ship that has to defeat this overwhelming force. And, so, you know, it's a it's a Sierra game, which is a lot of, you know, typing and clicking and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. quite good compared to this. And the humor is it's far surpassing. I wonder if they got inspiration from Quark. Probably not, but I hope not. What Check- not to do. Yeah, check it out if you if you're interested in vintage video games. Please, please don't watch Quark, but play Space <laughs> Quest Five. Um, it, it's it's a fantastic game. All right. Well, Steve, you suggested this, so what do you have to say for yourself? I watched this almost forty years ago. <laughs> then I watched it again just to torture you. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> what I got. <laughs> I, I'm just still still reeling and baffled by the fact that they put this on DVD. I mean, that just blows my mind. I would love to see the sales figures of how many units they sold of this thing. <laughs> I, I gotta imagine there's skids of this sitting in some warehouse in Albuquerque just, you know, festering. Because <laughs> I've never seen this on DVD anywhere. And uh, I can imagine it's it's going to end up in the Atari uh, burying fields in the, the, the uh, dump with uh, the Atari games. Well, I will tell you one thing. In my research for this, I did stumble across, completely unintentionally, I'll have you know, a a T-shirt with featuring Richard Benjamin as Adam Clark and the, the crew. Wow. <laughs> what a waste of fabric. <laughs> you know, this would be a pretty cool, obscure thing to do as a Comic-Con outfit, though. Dress up as one of the, uh, <laughs> the core crew members, I was thinking. You'd probably get mad props for doing that. Who would that. recognize you? That's true. It's Be just tough. like a sanitation jumpsuit. 
Yeah, but you get much. all the, the details right, and you put the uh, the huge thick eyebrows that Quark has. That'd be awesome. <laughs> well, I guess we got different different definitions of awesome. If awesome is one person gets it and groans, <laughs> then it's awesome. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'd be the bell at the ball at the Comic Con scene if you had that on. <laughs> or you could be the big giant head and just wear like a black sheet around you, just walk around like that. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Can't get through the door, fall over on everybody, <laughs> wipe out entire booths at the Comic Con. Uh, th- see, that's a better show than this thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just uh, like you guys, I just found this so painful to watch. I-, I thought that it would have some redeeming qualities, like the rest of the ones that that Steve uh, suggested. But no, it's just the the jokes fall flat. The sets are bland and, and cheap looking. The, the the acting is terrible. The premise is horrible. It's not even like a, a, a smart satirical take on the sci-fi genre. It just, it's like throwing elements into a, a blender and drinking it and regurgitating it onto the floor. It's, just, it's, it's terrible. And yet, it got an Emmy nomination. <laughs> For costumes. For costumes. For costumes. For the costumes we didn't see in this episode. <laughs> uh, so, mercifully, that ends this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, how much you believe in the source, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, you guys have anything you want to plug? You can find me on Twitter at Lilliputian22. That's all I'm going to plug. I have a Twitter account. I forget what it is. Look at the hitting play one if you want to see what it is. No one falls in anyway, so it's okay. Um, more importantly, um, as our, our wonderful commercial brought out, my son, uh, whose YouTube name is Endercoder, has a fabulous YouTube channel where he does all sorts of Minecraft foolishness. And also, him and I are doing a series on our Three Blind Mice channel called Father and Son Survival, which I, I recommend you check out because it's quite funny. And it's definitely, uh, you know, surpasses Quark, at least, in, in humor content. So, check it out. You can find that at Three Blind Mice, which is a channel on YouTube. Thank you. Very good. Steve, you got anything to plug? I really got nothing to plug, in, uh, and I don't even want to put my uh, <laughs> my Twitter account out there, because I don't even want to hear the comments after this one. <laughs> Very well. I'll I'll listen to your comments. I am on Twitter at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I'm also on Vine. My name there is MC and Friends, and there I do flip page cartoons, little humorous animations. If you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout out on the show. For Android users, we are also available to stream and or download on Stitcher. We can be found on TuneIn Radio, and we are also on the Google Play Music app. So. Check us out on those platforms as well. Well, we have been Steve, Lily, Sean, and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. May the source be with you. Oh, grot. (laughs) 